episodes till season nine. It is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 362. How many episodes until what, Rob? My name is Caleb Haig. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob Vanoff. I'm wondering how many more episodes until we begin season nine, which is like really hard to believe. But... Season nine, yes. And then um, I was wondering, are we going to are we gonna uh, get a new sound intro, a new music for season nine? All to be seen. I love those horns, man. I don't know. Yes. That Very baritone good. sax. Oh, we won't get... Bad. No, no. We, we're not changing the music. I paid good money for that music. Actually, the funny thing is that I get people asking me on a regular, what's that song? Like, they want to look it up on YouTube or whatever and listen to it. And it's like, that's the Messiah Matters song, yo. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, what's going on, man? What's the song from the what's the seventies show? Is that Sanford and Son? I, I legitimately have no clue what you're okay. talking about. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's a lot of people in the chat room today. Hello everybody. Sorry we're a I like little bit the late. Mug, man. Oh yeah, I should show this to everybody. Um oh thank you for saying that because now I need to put up my fall producers. There they are. Fall producers and all of our fall producers got this guy right here. Look at that! Oh, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Messiah matters. If you if you don't know what that's supposed to look like, it looks like the Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, you know, bucket a chicken, bucket o chicken, but instead instead of the Colonel, it's Luther. Dude, that is awesome. That is that's awesome. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, what's going on, man? I feel like uh, I feel like it's been a while since we've done this. And to be honest, let's just be honest with everybody. This show has been just really hard to put together, um, and for multiple reasons. I'm I'm desperately trying to learn how to uh, sheetrock my uh, my office, and that has been has been the bane of my existence uh, now for a little while. And uh, there's just been a lot of things going on in my life, so. Everything has just kind of been put on hold, which has been very interesting and very weird. But uh, yeah, so the- theologically, I haven't, I haven't quite been there, if you know what I mean. Um, so putting this show together was really hard. In fact, Rob and I had three meetings about this show, and one of them was at eight o'clock this morning, and uh, we still really didn't have too much knowledge of what we were going to talk about. But we do recognize that it's Reformation Day coming up on. Uh, what is it? Uh, Sunday is Reformation Day. Uh, this show is being broadcast on Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. So, um, yeah. So, Reformation Day is coming up. And actually, so I think there's a lot that we could talk about in regards to Reformation Day. And where we, where we are as believers, where the church is, all those kind of things with reference to Reformation Day. Before we get started in that, though, there are some other things that I want to talk about. So I came across this art article that was shown to me by uh, Michael who, here in the office. Um, and it, actually, he showed it to me when I brought up. It was interesting because he was he looked at this after I brought this up. But um, I should. Yeah, maybe I should let the cat out of the bag on some of the videos I'm going to do soon. I found a new note taking program. So on, on uh, Growing a Messiah, I'm going to do some videos on this new note taking program because is amazing. Anyway, it's revolutionized my study in my life in general. 
uh, I've integrated this note taking system into my um, into my everyday life. So I do this all the time. Like I do this every night. Anyway, here's a passing thought that I had yesterday. Laws that are given to Israel when they enter the land. So like laws like when you enter the land, dot, dot, dot. Okay. Mm-hmm. Such as the Shemitah year are not simply for the land of Israel. Rather, God gives his command. Now, we've t- talked many times on this on this, uh, on this this show about the notion that uh, laws, there are specific laws simply for Israel, not, not for everyone. And the Shemitah year is one of the ones that we've used as, as an example. So this was my passing thought the other day. And I, I'm still hashing this out. So such as the Shemitah year are not simply for the land of Israel. Rather, God gives his commandments to the nation and the land that he expects will carry them out, but instructs them to be a light to the nations so that they will take the Torah to the rest of the world. And so as I kind of hashed this out, I thought about the, the passage in Deuteronomy that says, when you're in the land of your enemies, and you do all that I have commanded you in this law, then I will bring you back. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But does that mean that laws such as the Shemitah should be kept? So this brought me to another kind of thought thought process of what they're doing in Israel. And this is where the article that Mike showed me came into play, if I can find it here. Okay, it's and the link is in the, the description of this YouTube uh, video. So anyone in the chat room can follow along if you want. I'm about halfway down. It says, uh, this is from the Jerusalem Post. Learned rabbis like the late Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook agreed to the use of header, special di- dispensation, to sell the land to non-Jews during the sabbatical year to permit the land to be worked. Okay, so this, now, this is really interesting to me because basically what what the Jews in Israel do is they don't say, yeah, let's let's celebrate the Shemitah year. Now, granted, there's all sorts of different issues. When do you start counting the Shemitah year? So on and so forth. Do you want to jump in here? I feel like I've just talked nonstop. But one of the reasons, what now, uh, Rabbi Cook from, I mean, he lived basically early 20th century in Israel before before it was even the state of Israel, right? I mean, so right. they called it British Palestine or whatever. He saw, you know, Jews were coming back and they were working the land and they saw the land becoming fruitful, right? Because year after year, people were like working hard into tilling the soil. Right. Uh finding out what vegetation works best, where, all this kind of stuff. And he endorsed this idea because the thought was we want the greater good was that the land get cultivated. Um, and, And so that overrode. The idea was if they work so hard, let's not let it sit for a year. And so... I know that that was kind of a workaround for then, but is what I didn't know, and this maybe you can tell me from the article you guys are talking about, are people still doing that today? Okay, yeah, so so this is actually, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, first of all, Sean Fisher, great point, brother. Sorry, my bad. We just use this word as if we know, every, uh, as if we believe that everybody knows what it is, and not everybody knows what it is. So for those who don't know what the Shemitah year is, let me explain, in uh, Leviticus 25, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the uh, people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather it in it its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. 
<clears throat> a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Okay, so one of the reasons that this actually has been a topic on this show before is because people have written in and said, hey, listen, I live in the U.S., should I keep the Shemitah year? And what we've said, that what I have, I'll put it on me, what I have said in the past personally is, no, you don't have to keep it because, A, it's talking about the land of Israel. It's not talking about the land of America. This land is given to Israel. Okay, so that's that's number one. But two, we don't know when the Shemitah year is because Israel didn't count during the exile, either the Israeli exile or the Babylonian exile. And so they didn't count the Shemitah years. They weren't keeping the Shemitah years in the first place. So we don't actually know what year is the seventh year. However, when Israel came back into the, when uh, we, we shouldn't say it that way. When Israel became a state in uh, 1948, they started counting from the from that year, from 1948. And so technically speaking, they would say, and I'm I'm starting to shift my view on this. They're, th- what they are saying is we should keep every seventh year from the time that we came in. And we should keep a jubilee year every 50 years. Okay, now why was Israel exiled in the first place? Israel was exiled in the first place because they weren't keeping the, the Shemitah. They were not allowing the land to rest. That's I, I, sh- I shouldn't say that's the only reason, but that but that's one of but the reasons. At the, right, that's explicitly said at the end of Second Chronicles. It says the, the land will enjoy her Sabbaths. Right, right, right. Right. I mean, the idea is that they hadn't been. So when we talk about the Shemitah year, we're talking about the seventh year where the land is supposed to, to rest. Now, what's really interesting to me, now I'm still in a state of flux in, in where I'm going to stand on this because I I legitimately am working this out in my own the, theology right now. Um, but with that said, it's interesting to me that what we see from the from Israel is that they're doing everything possible to get around the Shemitah year. So if I'm in, so if I'm a farmer in America, I think it is a legitimate question if I'm trying to keep the Torah and the Torah tells me in Deuteronomy you shall keep, you know, when you're in the land of your enemies and you keep all the words that I command you in this in this law today, then I will bring you back. Okay, well if I'm a covenant member and I'm in a different land, should I be keeping the Shemitah year? That is a valid question. No matter which direction a person goes, it it is a valid question. So if I am a farmer in the US, what would I do? Would I attempt to actually, I mean, Cook says, well, sell your land, sell your land to a Gentile and lease it to him. And then he makes all, he'll, he'll work the land, which is exactly and, and he'll what benefit. he'll he benefit, benefit and, and he'll pay you and you'll still have your livelihood and then you'll get the land back. But the problem is, is that that's not the, that's not the point of the Shemitah year. The point of the Shemitah year is actually to let the land grow or to let the land rest. Now, here's the interesting thing. I was watching this show. This is maybe a year ago. I was watching this show. And this farmer in in the UK, granted in the UK, but this farmer, he had three fields on his property and he farmed different things. And what he would do is he'd farm in two of the fields and he'd let his cattle graze in one of the fields. And then after a year or two, he would switch so so that his cattle would go into one of the fields. And the reason he did that is he said that the cattle would use the restroom if right 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 and (laughs) and it would it was just it's a model for sustain long-term sustainability yeah it would refresh Uh, the soil and then and then his crop would be a lot better and so that got me thinking like you know really what god is doing here is yes he's saying this is my land it's not your land it's my land yes but we could say that about the whole world right the earth is the lord and all it contains and so if i quote unquote own a field do i really own the field no it's god's field 
And so maybe the, the law applies here. But listen to some of the other things, the other ways that they, and the, the interesting thing to me is that Israel, one of the explicit reasons that Israel was exiled was because they would not let the land rest. And listen to what, the, listen to what people in Israel are doing today. So Cook is one example. It says, in recent years, there have also been um, perfected methods of using header such as early sowing of vegetables before the new year, relying on the view of Rabbi Shimon of Sens, and the growing crops of hydroponics, hydroponics or soilless systems. In this instance, they use um, gravel and stuff like that, like greenhouses, I think. Now that might be a better that might be a better uh, option, but listen to this. How does the Shemitah year affect the Orthodox Israeli consumer throughout the year? There are regularly published ads in the newspapers, lists of shops from whom it is permissible to buy fruits and vegetables, and there are chains of shops that market only Arab or imported produce. Some Jews buy their fruit and vegetables in the Arab market in East Jerusalem, or in the past they, uh, they traveled to Arab cities where they were uh, sure that the produce was not grown on Jewish soil. So they don't care about the land itself. What they care about is whether or not a Jew is, is harvesting it. But that can be dangerous in these times. There is also an option to subscribe to an organization, Otzer Haaretz, where you pay just for labor and maintenance as opposed to acts to enhance the produce. So in other words, and this is this is the really interesting one, because I think that there are Christian groups that are going in and, and helping do this. Basically what, and I could be wrong about that, but I, I get the feeling that there could be, because what they do is they hire Gentiles to come in and work the land. And basically, they just pay the money that they get back. They just charge for the labor and for the cost. But but they're missing the point. The whole the whole thing for me is that they're missing the point. And the point that they're missing is that the land needs to rest. Any other thoughts? I, I just found this interesting. I just you're going down my you're seeing my my thought process on this as I'm going through it. I think uh, well, what you're getting at is how do these modern interpretations or workarounds or technologies like the hydroponic do these distract us from the meaning and the purpose reliance on god yeah what's the purpose from god's perspective why did it do we have enough information in the torah that we can say yeah we understand why god gave this um and then if we start there and then contrast our answer with these workarounds, do we see conflict? Right. And um, I think, uh, you know, the way God is zealous for hit the land. Yep. Right. And like, yeah, we, exactly. The, the very end of the canonical Tanakh, right? The, the second Chronicles is, I don't have it in front of me, I could find it, um, but it's, Land will enjoy her Sabbaths, right? Let, let me let me find it here. Um, this is great okay. programming, by the way. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're finding it out as we go. Um, <laughs> by the way, second what? second, second Chronicles thirty six. He says um, he's talking about the destruction of of. The temple, mm-hmm. right? The destruction of, of uh, Solomon's temple. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. 
So, so this is just like a, a narrator, the narrator in Chronicles, who's writing this in the early Second Temple period, but he's re- telling the story of the captivity and the, the the call to return. Verse twenty-one of Second Chronicles thirty-six to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until seventy years were complete. So, and then again, now in the first year of the king of Cyrus of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, etc. So, so there's a, a lot of things we remember here. One thing, especially that tie down of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied at the end. Well, remember Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, right, Habakkuk, they all lived and saw Solomon's temple with their right. own eyes, right? right? They, they, their preaching was well, you know, there wasn't a problem with Hebrew, right? The priest, there wasn't a problem with the priesthood in terms of knowing how to offer sacrifices, right? Right, all this stuff. But the problem was, like Isaiah put it, you know, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so Jeremiah is knows that, and you know, the Lord's told him that the king of Babylon's going to come and destroy the city. And Jeremiah is given this prophecy of what we call the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant, and that God's going to write his Torah on the hearts of his people. Right. And, and so he's giving that message. He's preaching that even though he knows that this amazing temple, that the glory of God himself, the glory of the Lord filled that temple when it was originally built. I mean, it's the same building. It's not like Herod's temple versus, you know, it's, it's the temple, but God's wiping it away. And, and we know that, that, but God destroying the temple did not mean the covenant was over. Right. Because, because the 70, because God's holding true. He's saying, look, my, the land is going to enjoy her Sabbath. Right. That's God maintaining the covenant, not abandoning Israel. And, and so what does that mean if the lord is willing to destroy the temple that solomon himself had built that his own glory had filled so that the priest couldn't even enter if he's willing to destroy that so that the land can get her sabbaths and the word sabbath is the word here not shemitah even though in the torah we it's called the shemitah it's the land the land itself in God's wisdom requires its own Shabbat. And so if I'm doing this workaround, if I'm saying, hmm, I'll tell you what, I'll sell it to a non-Jew for a, for a, year, a year, or we'll do some other little things. It seems like the, the simple command of rest is, is totally lost on them. That's, that's my sense. So there's a lot of really good comments in the chat room right now. Um, first of all, Mary says, but are all the commandments in regards to the Gentiles in your land also? So this is an interesting question from a one Torah perspective. So from a one law perspective, I would say that, yes, as long as so the, the one law perspective would say, yes, as long as you're in the land and you, you're a Gentile who has attached yourself to Israel, then yes, the, all of the laws apply to you. And we see this, we've argued this from a uh, Passover perspective that a Gentile has to be circumcised. When circumcised, the law applies to them anyway. I mean, they've become covenant members. So all of the commands apply to them. 
Uh, Lee says, and this is a great comment, it seems it had more to do with disobedience and living by faith more than the actual land. That's true. It was a heart issue. The land was an expression of depending on the Lord for provision. And this is probably the, the best point that could be made about all of this. Are we depending on God for our food or are we depending on the farmers? Are we depending on the rain? Are we depending on our paycheck, whatever it may be? Or are we genuinely relying on God? You know, my kids, when when we pray, they'll hear, and I, I love this, they'll hear me or my wife pray something and then they parrot that, right? So now my daughter, who is six, if if we're taking too long to get stuff to the table, she'll say, Thank you, Lord, for the food. Bless it to our bodies. We pray in, in Yeshua's name. Amen. That because she's heard that those are the key elements that she's heard. But then at some point we have to stop, step back and tell the kids like, OK, wait, wait, but what are we doing here? We're not just reciting something to recite it like we're genuine. Like, you know, we, we have to remind ourselves that this is exactly what we're doing. We're saying this comes from God. This isn't because of my paycheck. This isn't because I've done work. This isn't because of my boss. This isn't because this is because of God. God is the one who put it on our 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 plate. Okay. Good comments. Uh yeah, I think that there's a lot that could be uh talked about there. Let's move on. Um, so this I think we should move to Reformation Day. Let's just do it. Or should we talk about fulfilled first? What do you want to do, Rob? Let's do fulfilled. What was the question? Okay, so we got this early this morning on our YouTube on a YouTube video. Now I didn't even look what YouTube video it was, but the comment itself is it stands alone because I think that there are some missteps here. I don't know who this person is, and they probably won't ever see this. That's totally fine, but I think it's worth talking about nonetheless. Um, so they say fulfilling fulfilling the word fulfilling means complete. Put to uh, put an end to it. Going to synagogue on the Sabbath day means he observed Sabbath. So uh, I think what was in the video was the fact that Yeshua, Jesus, went to Sab- went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And uh, so, but no matter what the person's point is, and I'm a little fussy on what exactly the point of the comment was, what I want to focus on is this term fulfilling. Fulfilling means complete, put an end to it. I would... It's, have you heard people say that? In, yes. In, um, I don't know if the, that... Jesus kept the Sabbath, so I don't have to. Like, I've heard that logic before. Is that what you're hearing that person saying? That might be, yeah. He did it. Like, so in other words, he did he, it. He did it. And he completed it. And no other person had ever and, done it. And, and he, he did it. And he fulfilled it. And fulfill means complete or put an end to. And gotcha. I've heard this kind of, actually at uh, years ago at the ETS. Actually, I got a reaming for my father on this one. Uh, and rightly so. But, uh, uh, this guy uh, did a whole paper on Matthew five seventeen and why the word fulfill actually means done away with, and and at the end of the at the end of his paper, I raised raised my hand. This is why I got a reaming. I raised my hand and I said, respectfully, I disagree with everything you just said. <laughs> and my dad said, you know, no, you can't say stuff like that. You got to actually make an art, you know, t- say that anyway. Um, so. That actually became a joke between me and my dad after that. Uh, anytime I raised my hands uh, when he was teaching, I would say, respectfully, I disagree with everything that you just said, but uh, even though I didn't. Anyway, um, okay, so the, the point here is that the word fulfill does not mean put an end to. And I'll, I'll give you the example that I gave to Rob earlier. I am fulfilled in my marriage. Does that mean that my marriage is over? It's done? 
No, of course not. And so we've talked about this too before that the idea that um, that truly, truly Matthew five seventeen truly truly I say to you until heaven and earth are uh, are are done away with not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled and people say aha see look fulfilled it's done away with now it's everything's been done and fulfilled but this uh, this negates a significant amount of prophecy of the second return of Christ. Now, I, I fully admit, and I think that this is true, it is true when people argue all that needed to be done on the cross is done. In other words, our sin has been paid for. Yes, done. I'm with that. We are good when it comes to the work done on the cross. Now, is that what he's talking about when he says, until all is fulfilled? I would argue that in the Matthew 5.17 passage, it's been a long time since we've talked about Matthew 5.17. I try to stay away from that passage because it's the go-to passage for so many people. So I try to use other scripture. But in that passage, he first references until heaven and earth pass away. So the idea that that would come to fruition, and I know that that's an idiom. I know that that means like forever. But the the notion that he would use that in tandem with the idea that it would be done done away with when he died on the cross that doesn't that do, does not compute it that doesn't add up right thoughts um well yeah we could look at <clears throat> numerous places um one that came to mind quickly because in second year greek we're reading through john 15 right now which is um i am the vine you are the branches etc cetera, etc cetera. and it uses pleroma it's the same word plerao to be filled and he says you know the father's going to prune you well, the branches that don't bear fruit are just chopped off, thrown into the fire, right? But but um, the fruit-bearing branches on the vine are pruned so that they'll be more fruitful. And he says, and this is this happens so that your joy may be made full. And, and so now it, it may be fulfilled, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have great joy and then it'll be over with. Another example is, and I think it's in Romans where Paul's talking about, you know, the Torah is fulfilled in these commandments, right? right. It, um, it, it love your neighbor yourself, right? Is And in Galatians, he says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So does that mean it's over? Like, well, do I just help a brother one time well, and, <laughs> and then it's over and then it's fulfilled. It's done. Actually, no. Lee in the, in the chat room, fellow student, uh, at SB, um, says, uh, Matthew three fifteen. but Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> so does that mean that we're done? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Keep going, Rob. So uh, no, that's it. So what, what, so what would you of, so what would you say to someone about Matthew five seventeen then? Who said? Let, let me rephrase. Let, what would you say to someone who says that Matthew five seventeen is argument, fulfilled? Is it is it is that the people Yeshua is preempting his naysayers? He's like, don't even think that I came to destroy Lot because of the. I, you know, the intense sectarianism that have put their traditions and their specific interpretations above the word of God, that those are the people that are going to be publicly, uh, you know, complaining about Yeshua. 
or accusing him falsely, of course. And so people are going to hear, oh, Yeshua's, he's, he's straying from, from the law. He's breaking the law. And he's like, don't even let those thoughts, you know, in your head. Right. He's a, he is all about walking in the, in the Torah. The difference is he's, he's uh, walking in the true, the true Torah. He's not walking according to a sectarian um, special teaching or something right. like that. Now, of course, there are things that he will teach that resonate the same with the Pharisees, for example. Um, but, and, and it seems like with divorce, he's more in what we would, the later rabbinic framing, more of the Sadducean camp, or, or not the Sadducean camp, the, uh, what's his name? Beit Shammai or whatever, you know, the more stringent. Right. But it, but these are just other ways of comparing Yeshua's teachings with others. He didn't go, Yeshua didn't go to a, a sectarian group to learn Torah. Right. Right. As a matter of fact, I mean, Luke tells us when he was 12 years old, he, he they were up for Passover and he was in the temple, you know, they were talking about the law. They were talking right. about the Torah and they were all amazed at his, at his questions and his answers. And so, you know, I think that's the proper framework. I think for people who want to just take that one verse and cut it out and just say, oh, see, it means it's done away. He, the context is, it, it, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Right, right. So. Okay, let's keep going. Before we do, I want to bring something up. Now, we have often said that. Uh, oh, often said. I was almost going to say, <laughs> if I may, real quick. The whole subsequent thing, and I think uh, Tor Resource has a, a set that Tim Haig put together. It is often said, or you heard it said. Those are examples where there are oral traditions that are popular of how to understand uh, a certain commandment. And Yeshua said, it doubles down on the written Torah. Right. And then he, and like, um, like the adultery one, right? Um, he says, you know, according to the Torah, you know, God, God cares what's in your heart. And if, and if a man is already, you know, if he's lusted after a woman in his heart, it's as if he's already committed adultery. Like that, that is talking about God's heart behind the commandment. Not, it's not an attempt to micromanage the commandment. Right, right, it's, right. A, it's, it's showing God's heart that is true and full coherence with the whole Torah. Anyway, go ahead, Caleb. You said it's often said. Oh, I was I was going to say, what was I going to say? Um, hmm. Okay. Well, it is well, often Phil. it is often said that it is often said that we have some of the best listeners ever, and we do. Um, <laughs> I want I want everyone to re- be remembered of the jingle that was made for us for our phone number. Here you go. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Now, last week in the uh, in the spirit of the Hoff goes off, uh, we had another listener uh, send us something. Now, we've talked about getting a jingle for a super chat, and if you don't know what a super chat is, those who are in the chat room on YouTube have the ability to basically donate money to the show, and they can do that by 
uh, putting money in and then putting a comment, it's called a super chat. And basically what happens is that person's chat stays up for a really long time, depending on how much money they give. That's why it's called a super chat. So our friend Justin decided that he was going to, in the spirit of the Hoff Goes Off music, make us a, uh, a, a jingle for uh, the super chat. Now, we're not just going to take Justin's, although his was the first. We're not just going to take Justin's. We're going to we're going to leave this up to everyone to be able to uh, to 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 submit their their own jingles if they want. So here's the first one. This is what you have to. Uh, this is the bar that is set. Super chat. Super chat. Super chat. Super chat. Super chat. Super chat. Thank you for the super chat. Awesome. So uh, if you'd like to, it's so good, dude. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. So that makes if, me that makes me smile. So if you want to, uh, if and now remember also that uh, if you if you want to, uh, well, uh, just remember this at the end of our normal chats. Actually, I don't have. Oh man! And actually, thank you, Lee. We just got a super chat. So hang on just a second. Let's uh, let's bring up our normal soundboard. Now, at the end of our sound, usually what we do is we allow people who super chat to choose something from our soundboard, and then we end it with the "You've been blessed," and that comes from my own brainchild of uh, of weirdness. Anyway, so as my soundboard uh, loads here, is there anything that Lee wants to hear? I wish we had something. For- Never mind. All right, um, hang on. So basically, if you want to, uh, you can send us a uh, your entry for the super chat, and uh, then we will uh, we will put them together and we'll maybe we'll maybe we'll play all of them uh, one one of these times. So let's see here. Mm, let's do. I'm going to choose some for Lee here. Here we go. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. Of course you I'm right. Blessed. <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, it's good to laugh. It's it is good, good to laugh. Okay. So uh, let's move on. Now I want to talk about the Reformation. Uh, I believe, and I could be wrong, is this coming uh, This coming week is the, or the, yeah, this coming Sunday is the 504th. I could be wrong about that. 504th. Uh, uh, anniversary of the of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall. And uh so because of that, oh, we got was another it a super, wall? See, was it a door? It was a door, a wall, a, a billboard. Uh Mary, if you I want It was in Latin too. If you couldn't read Latin, you'd just be looking at like Mary, if you want something played, uh then you uh you let me know. We'll we'll bless you here in a few seconds. Um so Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the wall. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Mary has it all. She has it all uh, ready. All right, here, here we go, Mary. Here's your, uh, here's your request. Weights and measures. <laughs> You've been blessed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the door on October 31st, 19, uh, 1517, rather. And uh, this is actually after he posted 97 theses a couple weeks prior to that, which did not take off. What was the uh, what was the firebrand that lit the fire to ignite all of this? Well, this is all brewing under the system 
Okay, all of this was brewing under the system. Um, but there was a bishop who decided that he was going to redo uh, the cathedral in Rome because remember that the papacy had been essentially moved, let's say, to Avignon in, in, in France. And because of that, it was at St. Peter's Cathedral, I believe it was St. Peter's Cathedral, was in disrepair in Rome. And the, the Pope that decided to uh, move it back to Rome said, hey, I'm going to take this thing down to the down to the foundation. We're just going to rebuild. Well, that takes a lot of money. And so what did he do? He he instituted a very, uh, a very uh, <laughs> advantageous, I don't know, a very, a very interesting way to uh, to raise he, money. He, he was a market, he into marketing. Yeah, he got into marketing. And the way that he did this was he said, I tell you what, your ancestors, uh, they didn't believe right. They're in purgatory. And if you want them to spend less time in purgatory, then guess what? All you have to do is buy an indulgence from us. We'll bless this indulgence, uh, the money, and that'll give them less time. So the more money that you give, the less time they spend in purgatory. And ultimately... So they're paying off the devil, basically. Right, right. <laughs> Let them out. No, and kidding. ultimately what happens is that the... Um, well... So there's a lot leading up to this. I don't want I don't want to uh, I don't want to downplay the uh, notion that uh, Wycliffe and others had done some great work prior to this, and that the Pope was already being pushed against. Martin Luther though comes out now, and he nails his 95 theses through the door. If you read his 95 theses, the interesting thing is is that they don't they look pretty Catholic. They I mean Martin Luther at this time was a Catholic. And so uh, we think that he's, he's a, a, a Augustinian monk, I think. Right, and, he, and he's teaching at he's teaching at a university, so on and so forth. And uh, so basically, what happens? He he nails these theses through the door, and m one of the biggest ones was that the Pope did not have the, that it, that uh, selling of indulgences was wrong. Essentially, that was a major major point in the ninety five theses. Now, it wasn't until the Diet of Worms that uh, that things really kind of blew up when he was challenged to say whether or not the Pope had authority. In other words, could the Pope error? Could he err or not? And could the councils err? And this is really what, I mean, that the Diet of Worms is really the watershed moment, in my opinion. It's one of the watershed moments of the Protestant Reformation. They were not eating worms, by the way. They were the not eating worms. worms. However, however, Moms and uh, anyone who, you know, churchgoers in general, if you want something fun for uh, service this weekend, there are some great Pinterest, uh, some great Pinterest uh, uh, ideas for cakes and whatnot uh, with uh, with worms, gummy worms and, and things like this. Anyway, OK, so all of that to say, um, yeah, so Luther was the one who ignited the German uh, Reformation, which was essentially the beginning of the Reformation. Uh, now, what made this Reformation? Now, I, I've, this is hard to know where to go because there's so many places to go. But let's move into your more into your idea, and I'm going to do that by saying this: the thing that really made the Reformation happen was the invention of the printing press. The first book that was ever printed on the printing press was the Bible, and uh, the 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 printing press was essentially all of a sudden documents, whether it was pamphlets, whether it was books, no matter what it was all of a sudden had the ability to be, to be mass-produced. Instead of handwriting every single copy, you could mass-produce these things. Now, we have something tantamount to the printing press. Real footnote here real quick. Yep. There's a, there's a lady, she's a professor of medieval history. I think her name's Eisenstein. I don't remember. She's got a couple books. 
on the printing press and how it hit. There was a time where, if I remember correctly, she tells the story, they took, because college towns, wherever there was a university, there were a kind of a scribe guild. And what you do, you'd get, let's say I'm gonna have lectures from Professor Martin Luther. I'd have required reading. So I would have to go pay a copyist to copy right. out those things so that I could have my reading for that book. Okay, It's super expensive too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. So you'd have a natural, um, you know how you have like the, what do you call it? The restaurants and the, the service kind of industry that rises around a manufacturing thing. In the same way, you'd have service industry copyists. Right. Okay, well, the, obviously the printing press is gonna undermine those guys, but there was a time where they had Gutenberg a couple Gutenberg Bibles, and they were taking them to Paris. And the people in Paris saw them and they thought it was witchcraft because they're like, this is impossible. It's impossible that you have these multiple copies of a book and they're all exactly the same. So it's, it shows you like a little bit of a superstitious element, but you see how radical this printing press was like it hit to where people didn't, it didn't compute with the way they thought the world worked because they didn't know the technology. Obviously once, once they see the technology and the machinery, they go, okay. And then they see how it works. But for the people that just got hit with these books in their experience, you would have to have scribes. That's why they thought it was magic because how could, how could you have a scribe that has perfect, replication on each one anyway we have the same i mean we have a same kind of breakthrough in technology in our time on a different scale and that's the internet i was alive i remember vividly um going to israel in you know i was preparing to go to israel in 99 and my friend said to me you've got to get an email address and i said what What are you talking about why would i do that i don't want to have to go to a computer to look you know, I'll just go to the mailbox. It was, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, now, granted, the internet was around before, obviously before that, but it didn't really take shape until the 90s, right? Right. Um, and especially the invention of like Windows and then Windows 95 and so on and so forth. Okay, with all of that said, with all of that said, we have the same kind of thing going on. We have people who now all of a sudden have their ideas and they can be distributed in mass. And so what we get is in the in the Reform, during the reformation you had these groups of heretics that came out and they pushed against different ideas and whatnot and they were labeled as heretics many of, much of the time. And uh and yes, I was alive. So just to clarify the work that started to happen on the internet, on the actual interweb, the web, the net, all that kind of stuff, happened before I was born. That happened back in the 70s. And then uh, it really took took shape in the in the 80s and came to fruition in the 80s. But it was not, uh, it was not demilitarized, as it were, until the 90s. And that's really when, at least that's my understanding of it, and that's really when it, it came into homes. Um, my family was one of the first families that I knew that actually had a, com- a home computer. It was the second generation of a Macintosh that was ever produced. Um, anyway, okay. With all of that said, what we had in the in the Reformation was we had these heretical groups, and yeah, they they gained a lot of steam. They did gain a lot of steam, and the printing press did help some of that. But at the same time, what you had 
what you have now, what you have now is you have people not having to go to a printer, not having to pay for a printer, none of that. You can just put your your idea on Facebook and anybody can run with it. And I think this is one of the reasons that we see so many heretical nonsense beliefs flying around is because anyone and everyone can just pick up whatever information they want. And now I'm going to pass it to you, Rob. I want you to talk about what you were talking about earlier with me. Oh, well, we uh, we had, well, it's, a, it's come up on a couple different fronts. People asking about how to pronounce God's name. Which, by by the way... Which, by the way, has never been a huge issue for Christians. Right? I mean, it's been a debate here and there, but it's never been like... It's only it's only in the past 20 or 30 years that people have... I, well, Sacred Name Movement started well, well, in the 60s. Well, you know what? But, it, it, the printing press, though, back on this printing press, it really influenced that because the Protestants made use of the printing press. Right. And the Protestants, in their attempts to say, look, and to legitimize themselves over against what the Catholics who had all the power, right? I mean, the infrastructure was all Roman Catholic. Um, that's where you start seeing the Jehovah and the, the Yehovah and the Jehovah is in, you know, early 16th century printings uh, of, of the Bible. Right. In English specifically. And where they where the Protestants got that was from they had to learn Hebrew because in abandoning the Latin uh, gravity, as, as you know, the Latin being the authority of the, you know, the Vulgate for the Bible and even the Septuagint, they're saying we have to go back to reading the Old Testament in Hebrew and we have to learn the, you know, be able to read the New Testament and Greek. That's their thinking, which is good. I mean, it's a good trajectory, obviously. And, uh, but in so doing, that's where we see the reading of the vowel points of the Tetragrammaton, uh, the, which is most frequently Shiva, Holam, um, uh, Kamats, around the letters, and they come up with. Yehovah or Jehovah, the J, but the J or a I, it's, it's, we see it both ways. This is all happening in, with the printing press in different uh, English translations that are being produced in the 16th century. And, um, and so, uh, but it's not the Catholics. It's not the Catholics that are promoting right. that. Uh, and that gets traction, you know, it gets traction in the, the King James version, you know, in the, in the early 17th century. Um, and then you have, so now you have a kind of also, you have these rifts in Protestantism, right? You have different kind of, you know, the church of England and, you know, um, but it's not until the 1800s when we have the rise of Egyptology, Assyriology, what, which, what that is, that's, you know, these these French and German and English uh, going to the ancient Near East, or not the ancient, going to the Near East, and they've read cattle, uh, uh, travel logs of travelers and going, oh, there's a place with this inscription that this guy wrote about. I want to go find it, right? And so they start trying to decipher cuneiform 
it's in the early 1800s where Napoleon finds the Rosetta Stone in Egypt. Right. That's got hieroglyphs, hieroglyphic Egyptian, Demotic Egyptian, which is a different script, and then Greek. So it's in the 1800s you have it outside of a church. Now, sometimes maybe there were church institutions funding the universities, but basically you have a race of minds of, of creative individuals, like between France and England, for example, who's going to decode hieroglyphics first. And you have people saying, Oh, it's ancient secret language. You're never going to be able to understand it. Other people know it's alphabetic. It can be understood. And the same thing with the cuneiform with the, you know, the, the, the little wedge wedges in the clay from ancient uh, Babylonian writing who could ever decipher that. Then they found Darius's tomb, Darius the king, and they thought this is probably a Semitic language and it probably has his name. It probably says Darius, right? And so little things like that, that they tried. And by the end of the, of the 1800s, they have pretty much created a reliable grammar for ancient Egyptian, a reliable grammar for ancient Akkadian, and this was tested by like the Royal Asiatic Society in, uh, or Oriental so- Asiatic Society, I think in England in the 1800s, they're like, okay, we don't believe you guys have actually decoded this. So what they did is they found some, you know, new, brand new font- excavation. You know, I don't remember what it was specifically, but it was a tablet that these guys hadn't seen and they split them up and they said, you guys can work for a month. And we're going to see if you guys come up with the same translation. And and they did. They came up with enough, enough, uh, a similar translation that they're yeah. like, this is legit. This is legit. Okay. So in that context, you have all this academic world that is trying to reframe reading the Bible now, not from a faith community right. orientation or that we are the church, we are the ecclesia, but we are cutting edge thinkers that don't, that are just about, you know, they could be Darwinists, you know, we're just intellectual elite. We're going to solve this. And God did give us, you know, there are geniuses. There are people who are very, very smart, you know, and, and, and so in that time, they're like, well, we have to, you know, this gets sheds light on the Bible. You know, this is, this is Babylon, right? This is Egypt. And so they start trying to go back and look at Bible history and say, but now the Bible is not a sacred text in those laboratories. It's just another ancient Near Eastern document. And in so doing, they start then applying knowledge that they're learning there and saying, okay, well, we know Yehovah is wrong. We know Jehovah is wrong. What, what really would it be? What, what, what's like knowing what we know now about the ancient Near East, how should we say the name of God, of the God of Israel? And that's where they get Yahweh, Yahweh from German. Yeah. And then that becomes Yahweh. How do they spell it? uh, Y-A-H-W-E or W-E-H or something like that. And so that emerges as a reading. It's just over 150 years old. I don't even know if it's that old. You know, it's over like 150 years old or so. Um, But it emerges not in it's not a, it's not a name that's preserved by a faith community. It's not a anything like that. It 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 is stems from like this academic laboratory. Right. And then but then it bleeds out. It drifts out into these other circles. Um again now by this time publishing the preen press is just 
you know, monstrous, right? And you have all this academic stuff in German and French and English, and you have this assumption then, and in popular, like newspapers and stuff like that, you know, that this is how you would say the name of God. And now it's come so far now that like we, and we did a show, the, I think the, the new translation promoted by John MacArthur, they went back and they thought, well, we not, we, we're going to, we're not going to do the capital L capital O capital R, R capital D anymore. We're going to just use Yahweh. And so, and that this marked some sort of spiritual advancement in for the edification of the church. And so again, something that emerges from the outside. It's the laboratory now coming into the sacred. Yeah. Yeah. And now people now, and then the claim is this is going to draw you closer, but when in fact it's contextually, if you, if you, if you zoom way out and you look at the the thing, it's like, wait a minute, this is a new thing. And then you have newer people that are saying like, you have your Nehemiah Gordon, it's Yehovah. I can prove, you know, it's Yehovah. And then you have your Lou White and it's Yehovah or Yahuwah, or I, I don't even know. Yeah. yeah <laughs> choose, choose from the bag of names. Um, so, and then they all have their reasons. Right. Like the one I really like is, is it, we know it's Yahuwah because you take Yehuda, which is the Hebrew word for Judah, Yod, Hey, Vav, Dalit, Hey, and you take the Dalit out, but you say the same word and you get Yahuwah. And so, but the point is, these are all inventions, right? These are people trying to apply their cleverness to something that if we just remember, Yeshua said, you know, a servant is not above his master. You know, I mean, we go back and we look at the disciples of Yeshua, they're all happy using the, the uh, well, like what Paul says, you know, Maranatha, Mara, Mara is, is just Aramaic for Lord, the Lord. Uh, we have kurios means the Lord. We have Adonai it means the it, it, uh, that was totally it fine was totally for them. acceptable, right? It's and that and that should be good. That should be that should be awesome for us that we just accept that authority. Um, but and people I, it, want to in, innovate, and so they feel like because of the laboratory, we can innovate and and have new knowledge that's going to edify the church, and that's where it's dangerous. That's. That's where so the, the, the chat room says and uh, PCR hit the nail on the head on this one. It's not about how you say the name. It's about how you carry the name. Exactly. Um, Nehemiah did. Oh, Nehemiah Gordon did his uh, doctorate on the Tetragrammaton. They just gave Gordon a Ph.D. for his work. Hmm. Yep. Interesting. But, but it has nothing to do with if, if that's true. It's not on how to pronounce it. Right. What what his work was, he just looked at manuscripts where it was either erased or modified somehow. It's not how to pronounce it. They wouldn't. No one would give a PhD for that. Well, not only that, the, the Masora uh, circles, he never takes that argument to them. Yeah, he sells course. that on the side. Yeah, he sell, and, Yeah, exactly. He sells that. To, thing, he, gull, he sells that to gullible people. Here's the thing. I don't understand. I don't know any. Uh, academic or scholarly or educated Jewish circles that would accept his argument at all. Right. Um, it's mostly Christians that he's made his living from, I think, or people who are on the fringianity. Right. 
All right. Well, it's been a show, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, we certainly do base our show on uh, the content of our show. We base on what you guys tell us to base it on. We've gotten some emails recently. Actually, my friend texted me the other day and uh, sent a video. I just didn't have time to look at the video in between yesterday when he sent it and today. So um, we might get to that. But if you have ideas on what you want us to talk about, please send us an email or call our comment line. Our comment line is 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. Our email address is chegg, C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. And uh, yeah, make sure to subscribe and like this video uh, because it really does help us. As weird as that sounds, it really does help us. All right, guys. Thanks, everybody in the chat room. And thanks for the super chats to everyone who uh, who did that. And uh, yeah, we will see you uh, next week. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. And that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.